It's Don't Worry About the Government. Chris and Brian here. We were talking before we started taping here, and then I just decided that this was interesting enough that we ought to just include it on the show here. And one of the things I was thinking about is how you and me in various formats have been doing Don't Worry About the Government or like CMN News-style products since the the first demo podcast you and I did was the first Obama State of the Union. So it would have been the start when of was his... That? that would have been in 2009. No, yeah, two, yeah, 2010, I... 2010, 2010. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So we had Hadge Ross on, Jordan was there. Boy, that was a night. Yeah, it all wow. was. I, I was still convinced <laughs> that you could do like some bullshit with a room mic and that would somehow pass as radio if I just used enough compressor and EQ and just like maybe even snipped it up and tried to clean it up. I was doing some really weird shit to try to make bad audio sound better back in those days instead of just well, buying equipment. Yeah, I wasn't even considering that as far as the, the spectacle of it all, but we, it was we didn't really consider us. That. <laughs> it was really us with well, just to set the stage in, in, in that room, it was me and you with Hash Ross. And I'll let you uh, introduce uh, that gentleman. Yeah, Hadros is and- like one of the best linguists in the country. Uh, was I don't want to make them sound like they're like best friends or anything like that because I, I don't think they were that close. But I, him and Noam Chomsky were contemporaries, not in the politics realm, but more in the linguistics realm. Hadros was like such a unique guy. I mean, I think he's still with us and everything like that, but uh, I mean, just him as a teacher, always putting out free books and stuff. Here's this thing I printed off. You should just read it. Just read. I mean, the dude was quite literally dropping knowledge everywhere and you could just grab it and pick it up and learn about this thing or that thing. Anything from music to philosophy to the linguistic stuff you were supposed to be learning about and class was just class and you could just get an A hanging out with Hadge Ross and he was awesome. He, he, was, a, he was a wonderful guy and you learned a lot too. I, I'm watching him. I remember vividly him breaking down Carl Sandburg's The Fog and leaving that lecture I, he, what he does is he puts the entire poem up on the board and then he starts making all these different connections between this word and that word and how this word interplays with that word and really shows you like poetic structure to to the point where you really begin to appreciate the word as a form of art and i, I he made a massive impression on me and i i think it was the same for you as well right well i only had an impression on him based on the night that we had Washington State of the Union. I never had him as a as a, as a professor. Uh, but I guess this was mostly me and Jordan getting him then. Yes. I thought I thought you had him as no, well. I, I I didn't have him, but based on the the general description of him in, in lecture, it, it makes sense based on just the. the oh, he would the, totally have been your type of guy, well, yeah. dude. Yeah, yeah, you would have been in every one of his classes. I think if you'd known about it sooner. Damn it, man. Damn it. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> well, this is totally your type of guy. <laughs> yeah, well, he just as far as our 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 back and forth during the State of the Union, it was it was fun to just have a conversation with him. But that that's the type of like the person who can make you fall in love with poetry based on being a 
linguist, uh, like based on being uh, in in a totally different form of you know academia. Uh, th th that's the sort of person that you know you uh, you know I have I have my own uh, uh, favorites, but uh, they're not related in, in this way at all, and uh, from uh, different colleges altogether. But uh, no, it, having having him just come into our come into our our shabby house and and just hang out with us while we watch the State of the Union. Uh, like I'll never forget that as 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 far as that just being a uh, kind of a a, a a transcendent moment. It was pretty for me. wild. Yeah, yeah. I, like I, I I had some expectations, and then I, I, like when you said his name, I I I had to Google search him, and and uh, uh, just I I I I didn't know what to expect, and then just him being so natural around us. Uh, it was it was really enjoyable, and it made me take that 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 moment a lot more seriously than I think I would have otherwise. Yeah, I think about some of the really kind of fluky early booking successes that I had when I was like way not ready for them, and it's obviously on one level really exciting. It's like you've you know hooked this big fish, and then it's super intimidating trying to reel it back into the boat. And sometimes it feels like. The fish kind of got away from you uh, during the actual appearance on the show. But uh, I was thinking back on that and just like putting together that episode for me was as much obviously about Bernie Sanders as it ended up being like a revisitation of the Obama administration and like our long arc of talking about the Obama administration and kind of like how you and I as millennials essentially have arrived at our political view in the world because of the news events that we lived through um, as people over the age of 18. I mean, obviously there are Gen Zers who were alive for those events, but we're like 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, and they don't have the same sort of salience as they did for you and me. And it was, it was interesting to go down memory lane in that sense and think about how I feel about this administration right now, especially in terms of executive power abuse, the visceral reaction that I'm having that I'm not necessarily detecting from others, I think so much tracks from my reaction to the Bush administration and my disappointment with Obama's administration in rolling back any of the executive power that Bush took for himself in the wake of 9-11. Yeah, I, I think those early days of uh of podcasts really trained me to focus on the on the issues that disturbed me as opposed to the regimes that disturbed me and so when we went from bush to obama the, the same issues were disturbing me only now it was disturbing me because these were supposed to be the political figures that cleared up the things that disturbed me. Obama, as the executive, has the ability to roll back the executive advances that Bush took for himself, and he was electing not to. Right. And with the Patriot Act, you were pretty much doubling down on it. Right. Yeah, and the NDAA, and I mean that that was such a kind of recurring frustration during that administration. Someone asked me to do a long-form episode of 
Hillary Clinton, and I've already made Brian and many people associated with this show read Hillary Clinton's 16-hour book, and they all hate me still. Brian's still mad at me over that. He's he's not happy. No, uh, other than the show, we 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 really don't speak at all. It's it's because of that request. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a big ask. It was dumb of me in hindsight especially doing the audiobook form as read by Hillary Clinton. But that's something to consider for another time. But I did want to touch on the idea of, like, what was Trump up to during this time? Because in certain ways, I think it's just totally different than Bernie Sanders, and so I didn't want to do a side-by-side because I didn't want to lend it to the idea of, oh, Bernie did this, but Trump did this. See, it's 50-50. That's not what I'm saying at all. But, like, it's interesting to think back to when you and I – we're doing the episode. We did a big episode. Uh, I think there was even the sense at the time or shortly thereafter that maybe too much time was spent on it at the time. But I now think the right amount of time was spent on the Glenn Beck rally at the Capitol. Because if you remember at the time, you and I were kind of worried that Glenn Beck might run for president. That someone who was talking this strong right-wing extreme populist rhetoric laden with tons of conspiracy theories would find enough traction among the Republican electorate that they could make a run to the White House. You ever think that maybe Glenn Beck, especially as he's running this failing radio show right now, is realizing that he missed his true calling as being the populist demagogue that he wanted to be? It intimidated me enough to where... uh, I took it seriously. Absolutely. I took it seriously as him as a as a figure but i don't think at the time i thought oh the gop is very susceptible to this like i i definitely i don't know if that's me being young at the time and not seeing these figures come here and there come and go or if if that's really a unique moment for the gop to to reveal itself i i uh, I don't know what it was. It but, shows you where the base is. Yeah. I mean, I think it showed you where the Tea Party was at. If you want to look at Trump, and I think a lot of people have argued this is kind of the fruition of Tea Partyism. I think Glenn Beck was one of the key high water marks of that era of Tea Partyism and that big rally that Glenn Beck did. Uh, was it was like the t- nine nine twelve rally? Remember that he wanted to have us in the spirit of the day after nine eleven. That is very much where a lot of Trumpism kind of ended up going. I, actually, <laughs> to that point, Trump gets elected in one of the key articles in the twenty sixteen election in conservative circles, written by Michael Anton under like an alias. It was called the Flight 93 election, where they analogized the election choices between Trump and Hillary Clinton as choosing to crash the plane. So you have to vote for Donald Trump to crash the plane to stop the terrorists from taking the plane. Around this time, he's doing Howard Stern, which is obviously different from Tom Hartman, but is similar in the sense that he's getting on a radio show regularly And getting his warped little viewpoint out to millions of people. He's obviously doing The Apprentice. And he's also doing Steve Bannon's radio show. Where he is forming his politics. So there are are certain ways in which Donald Trump 
is checking some of the same boxes that Bernie Sanders did in the formula to success. There's something that he unlocked in in the media uh, that you, you, it's, it's definitely a, a, a Pandora's box moment with how the media just treats political figures. And, uh, and I think how the public perceives political figures through the lens of the media. Yeah, I think yeah. to a certain extent, Bloomberg is going hua around the media, as Trump likes to say as well, by just blasting people with these Seinfeld-esque ads about nothing at people in mass. He's manufactured a ton of support because I think people don't really care what the media has to say one way or the other about these candidates, except when it's negative. They don't trust any of the positive commentary, and oddly enough, they tend to believe almost all of the negative commentary or the negative coverage. Yeah, there's only so much of a critique that I can give towards the media until I am start thinking about it through the the framework of well what what is the public susceptible to and what is the public asking for and uh and what does the public deserve uh based on their uh their their just general willingness to be informed as opposed to their eagerness to be amused um and and that's where I think what's really scary with like Bloomberg is how low people's support threshold is. This guy is saying nothing and manufacturing people's support for well, him. Well, that's where the electability like I'm I'm confused right now because as Biden is taking and he is supposed What a pointless word electability is. Yeah. But well as Biden is taking and he was supposed to be running on electability Bloomberg is flourishing, and the only thing he has going for him is vacant platitudes, which can only be valued in terms of electability. And so, what what does that mean as far as the value of electability? I don't I don't understand what's going on here. It's just crazy. His favorability right now, as we sit in the race, recent polls here, it's. Above Buttigieg and Klobuchar, Klobuchar's favorability sits at 40%. Andrew Yang, now out of the race. One of the many accomplishments that he had during this race, obviously he didn't win any primaries or whatever, but his favorability is at 49%. Solid. It's above Amy Klobuchar, who's still in the race and had 1,000 think pieces supporting her candidacy. Imagine if Andrew Yang had those. Pete Buttigieg at 50%. Michael Bloomberg, 58%. Elizabeth Warren, 64%. Joe Biden, 70%. Bernie Sanders, 73%. This is favorability. I, I, I consume a lot of NPR on, 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 uh, on a commute into work. And... Uh, there was something recently about there, like people were they they were getting some some uh, I don't know if these were New Hampshire responses, but basically it was hey it's gonna a lot of t- it's gonna take a lot of money to beat Trump and you know who's got a lot of money is Mike Bloomberg and uh, the, there was like that's where electability in my opinion 
like goes straight into money into politics because yeah right is money in politics a bad campaign issue is that what we're learning here because that that's what i'm gleaning from the michael bloomberg thing obviously i care about money in politics as an affirmative one it's strange to me how people's reaction to trump and the fact that trump won in 2016 with less money than hillary clinton oh by the way yeah. But the the idea that like beating Trump necessitates just going with some richy rich guy who has a ton of money, and that even though the money's the problem, the answer to that problem is more money. This is the Homer Simpson adage of beer is the answer. I forgot the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, Hillary's seven hundred and fifty million lost to Trump's four hundred million. And the reason we're condoning Michael Bloomberg is because it's going to take a lot of money to beat Trump. And like, but, but with that said, I totally acknowledge that that is where the voters, the, the, the typical voters mindset the viewpoint. is. Yeah. yeah this no, is, I know. This yeah. is the actual I'm, viewpoint. I'm, I'm absorbing like, it. <laughs> but that, that's how, that's how transparent the contradiction is. You know what I mean? Like, like you don't have to go further than that. Like, you don't have to say, well, Michael Bloomberg doesn't care about this, actually. No, it, it's, it doesn't even get to ideology. I mean, what if a lot of Bernie's support is literally based around the idea that his campaign has a decent amount of money? And that people yeah, like it, Bernie, that, that, but that what makes, they're looking at is uh, just how much cash on hand the dude has. Especially when there, there, there's crossover over things like name recognition. like all, Yeah, all, name recognition's a big one, too. I, I don't think that's being given enough credit yeah, here. But between the, the top candidates, you've got Sanders. Pete is the outlier as far as the name recognition. And then you have Bloomberg, who has... Decent name recognition. I don't know, man. I don't know what to make of it. It is really stunning to me that the progressive candidates, which is Bernie and Liz, have allowed this Bloomberg charade to go on as long as it has. Because if it were me, and if I were Bernie, and I had at my disposal people like the Army of New York, Chapo Trap House, and all of the podcasts out of New York City and stuff, and the calmness. You could do a shitload of fuck Michael Bloomberg articles. Here are just a, a few that I'm coming up with off of the top of my head. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is a super rich member of the 1% who is the opposite of the values of the Democratic Party or liberals on the left. Michael Bloomberg is generally a Republican and has been a Republican for most of his career. Hey, if it worked for Liz Warren, it might actually work for an actual Republican. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg tried to change the charter of New York City so that he could have a third term as mayor, because two terms was not enough. I mean, this stuff basically writes itself. This critique of Michael Bloomberg writes itself. And I think that there was a certain level of, I will say it, arrogance on both the Warren and Sanders campaign that this Michael Bloomberg thing was ultimately a distraction because one or the other of them more or less had this thing shorn up. Well... I know this is more of a uh, more of a, a, a Twitter contradiction than a 
than a real typical voter contradiction. But one of the one of the uh, general uh, uh, contrarian arguments against Bernie Sanders is Bernie isn't a real Democrat. Oh, that's completely gone with Michael Bloomberg. That's completely I, I, gone I totally when you forgot adopt- about that. Well, no, I didn't forget about that. I mentioned that. But but yeah, no, but I mean, that's completely gone with Michael when, Bloomberg. When and no one's are, framed it like that. Yeah, when, when you are a moderate who is trying to say, yeah, but I'd, I'd rather get behind Bloomberg than Sanders because uh, I supported Hillary in 2016 and bad blood, blah, 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 blah. The, the problem is, is that he uh, he isn't a real Democrat in the sense that he used to be a Republican. Like, like not, not in the sense that he is currently an independent. But like, yeah, or if, Bernie if, is someone if, who caucuses with the Democrats yeah. and identifies as an independent, if, if and it's kind are, of frustrating, but... If, yeah. if, if you are a, a burner to the point that you are willing to cast aside Warren for previously being a Republican. But then, like, there's something about that where uh, when you contrast that with with what's going on with, with Bloomberg, like... The dude doesn't even have his own emoji yet. I don't want to say <laughs> maybe there's been some misspent energy, the, but... Yeah, I, and in, in my opinion... I don't think the progressive community was prepared to um, to wage a, a viral war against someone who doesn't come at them online. Um, but he is coming at them online. That's the yeah, weirdest well, thing. He, he, he's doing it. He's doing it midstream. And I think that's what what like confuses them. It's like super passive. too. Yeah. It's like his campaign is just out there putting out bullshit online. <laughs> And Mike's nowhere to be found. Where's Mike? Right? Mike doesn't say shit. He doesn't do a lot. There's ads. They kind of put him out a little bit, but he's not doing, you know, big old Mike Bloomberg rallies. He's not trying to make headlines. It's all about this bizarre-ass meme stuff. And, man, dude, they're hitting me up on my phone. They got my number. I, I get hit up by Bloomberg a ton. And, and there's an article today that I, I threw up on the uh, Twitter machine here where they're talking about how they're vastly overpaying everyone on the campaign staff to the point that I was seeing yeah. that other yeah. down-ballot state and local races are having a hard time cobbling together campaign staff. So Mike Bloomberg is actually hurting the Democratic Party right now with his candidacy. Yeah, he's... Huh. Like, from a marketing standpoint, I can't say that he is spending his money stupidly. Uh... Uh, dude, he's slingshotted himself into third or fourth place, like, depending I, on how you want to measure this, uh, doing bullshit. Like, if you want to look at this as poker, like, Bloomberg has a stack of money that cannot be surpassed. And so you can't even look at the money he spent so far because he came into the race after the race began, and he's already... Uh, He's already in the mix. Uh, I like the poker analogy a lot because your stack dictates 
how you look at those cards yes. and how one plays yes. their hand. And so you could have, let's say, like a, I used to play a ton of like Texas Hold'em. So if you were the big stack and you get something like, let's say, Ace-8 suited or Ace-9 suited, mediocre hand, it's suited so it's a little bit better than average here, you should definitely play that because you've got a lot of money. If you don't have a lot of money left and you got Ace-9, you probably should play that because that's the best hand you're going to see before you're out of money. But if you're in the middle of the pack there and you've got like A7 suited, you're going to be more likely to fold it than at either one of those two extremes just because of your stack position and the way that you, those cards relate to your money. So when Bernie's making a choice, when Warren's making a choice, when Biden's making a choice, or Buttigieg is making a choice, you can contrast that to Bloomberg because he can make stupid decisions and it doesn't hurt him. So if he makes a bad hire and he has to fire a bad person, who cares? It's not hurting him like it might hurt Bernie. It's not hurting him like it might hurt Buttigieg or, or Klobuchar. Well, and the other thing is, compared to Bernie, whenever you think of Bernie's staff, it seems so personal. And so whenever someone on Bernie's staff makes an obvious flaw in, in whatever I feel like you're thinking about Nina Turner right now. No, I I don't I don't want to call anyone out specifically. But oh, why not? <laughs> go I go on if you fine. want to say I'm stage. calling out Nina Turner. Right. Sure. Yes. Whenever that happens, it's 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 looked upon, at least in the Twitterverse, as like indicative of Bernie. Whereas Bloomberg can immediately say well, this was just a a clerical error, and, and he's right. And yeah, he's right. Be the, 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 he, yeah, he, he has no he's got no attachment to that person. <laughs> <laughs> to, to think that Michael Bloomberg could have an attachment to anyone in the way that Bernie Sanders has an attachment to Nina Turner, like, like, is absurd. Like. Yeah, or even Sirota, or where even, like you could see yeah. pictures of Sirota from twenty years ago working with Bernie Sanders. Yeah, yeah. It, so yeah, right. No, no, no. I I, I totally get what you're saying here. Like he, like Bloomberg could hire an army of mercenaries. I'm sh- I, I am certain, just based on like some of the stuff that I'm seeing on Twitter now, like articles of him pertaining to Bloomberg. It seems like he's gotten himself some bots yeah. for Twitter, especially with using online surrogates in the extremist form as in like literally just random faces on the internet going oh yeah absolutely i definitely love mike bloomberg (laughs) Uh, and and i think it's more transparent with him than other candidates it's not that i mean i do think other candidates depending on who the candidate is some do it more some do it less but i think what's great about mike bloomberg in terms of a test balloon for especially for this audience is you could scan who is just kind of wallpaper for mike bloomberg because there is no policy here this is a candidacy about nothing let let me tell you who the perfect the perfect target is for michael bloomberg and that's oprah winfrey i think i i know where the first level of counter arguments come when progressives or anyone who claims themselves to be a progressive starts campaigning on behalf of Michael Bloomberg. I think what they're going to say is that he is serious on climate change and that um, and that he has never wavered on climate change. So can you 
can you claim from that point how Michael Bloomberg is going to corporatize climate change response in a way that has diluted the response? I'm so glad you asked because this next comment has been paid for by Michael Bloomberg's (laughs) campaign. Michael Bloomberg is going to be very, very strong on climate change. Mike Bloomberg knows how to bring together people from different parties to focus on the real issues that are affecting America, like climate change, a real issue that Michael Bloomberg knows how to bring people together to address. That's why I support Michael Bloomberg's position on climate change, and so does Brian. Well, I, I guess I, I feel like I feel like the left is susceptible to, to that, and they don't understand how much of the left doesn't need a holistic. You have to be you have to be le- you have to be progressive on health care and climate change and in ABCDEFG, and and Michael Bloomberg is going to come out with a quasi progressive argument to combat climate change, and that's going to be enough. Here's the weakness. The weakness is Green New Deal. The fact that that idea, that initial draft resolution, was so much more than just doing something about climate change, that it was like this grand catch-all for sort of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others in Congress's broader progressive vision— I think that becomes very easy to create a pared-down version against. Because, like, I mean, even Inslee's is quote-unquote pared-down, even though I think when you balance it out, Inslee wants to spend more money and it has every bit as ambitious. He's just specifically about environmental stuff. I think Bloomberg can come in and slide in and go like, ah, but Inslee's too expensive and have something even more targeted and it's just about pollution or something like that, something about emissions. And a lot of people be like, oh, okay, emissions. We need to yeah. do something about that. That that will sound good enough to them. One thing I'm noticing is, especially among people who who might maybe be in the swing voter fence, and my parents would be included in this. Socialism still has a salience with people over the age of 45 that, like, I don't hear and you don't hear, particularly because I recall Barack Obama being called a socialist. I used to joke, kind of referencing Daria, because I am old, (laughs) uh, that Barack Obama was an atomic communist. And if you know that Daria episode, you are my spirit animal, and I am with you always. Uh, It's the one with nuts. It's the one where they get the job at the nuts stand. Where do you think this ends? I, I like. Here's what I want to think about. Let's do a few more minutes on Bloomberg. Fuck it. Um, the debates. Does he make it onto the stage? Like, I feel well, like he has to, this? right? Yeah. At, at what point in the well? The DNC had to change I, the rules, okay. but but like I'm saying, they almost had to, right? Because he got so up in the polls that it's weird to so, not so have how, him on the stage, even though I have huge principled objections to him how being about on this? the stage. When you look of when you look at pre-Super Tuesday and post-Super Tuesday, when does it benefit Michael Bloomberg to enter the debate stage? I mean, I feel like he had to be on the debate stage this month because at a certain point, those voters in those Super Tuesdays states, I think, are going to want to see this guy get on the debate stage. I, I don't know. I do think that there is a ten- <laughs> I think there's a tentativity. Like, they're saying tentatively 
they're interested in Michael Bloomberg. And, I mean, look at those ads, Brian. The, the, the red is soft. The blue is warm and inviting. Or maybe I had that backwards. The blue is soft. The red is warm and inviting. I don't know. There's a kind of a yellowish, but but nice and nostalgic hue to the white in the Michael Bloomberg ads. This seems like a guy that can wear a hard hat, but also go to a boardroom and wear a proverbial hard hat. I, I, but I, I think also people want to see this guy get on stage and his candidacy will feel a bit illusory without yeah, him being but, on stage, much in the same way that like, mm. someone like Gabbard, who I think we discovered during the course of this campaign, was really really the Ron Paul of this campaign in many ways, uh, not not just doing handy the last night or whatever, whenever we're taping this. I think... Um, and mm. kind of uh, getting a jump on my theory that she's going to be a Republican yeah. in 10 years. I think it might be five at the end of this. I, I, have, to, I have to believe that there are less people that I want to believe are out there who really need a primary candidate to reveal themselves before the general election. I think if I think, I think the DNC when, when, when given the choice between getting, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the DNC when given the choice between getting behind Sanders and getting behind Bloomberg would rather take a, uh, would oh, rather take Bloomberg. a blind shot at Bloomberg on at his first debate being general election debate number one, as opposed to Sanders. Absolutely. The Democratic Party will say, <laughs> we are finding a way to build a bipartisan coalition because Donald Trump is such a uniquely bad president and we tried to impeach him, but the Republicans won't do it. And so we're willing to work in a bipartisan way with this Republican sort of Michael Bloomberg, who just randomly also hates straws and stuff. Or no, he likes straws, but he hates sugar, right? no. He would also ban straws, right? He hates straws and he hates sugar. I think that's Michael Bloomberg. But whatever. We're working with this guy who's a billionaire who also has... He would really, truly be the Democratic Party's Trump. And if they're willing to go that far, I'm very interested to see how many Democratic voters are willing to swallow this pill. Putting Michael Bloomberg... As the figurehead of the Democratic Party, I don't even know that it ensures us any security on the Supreme Court. RBG's going to leave. Yeah, Would Michael Bloomberg put up someone as liberal as RBG onto the Supreme Court? Damn it, man. Uh. What does his administrative state look like, especially in the case of a financial crisis? Trump's going to do a big, giant-ass handout to Wall Street when the next yeah. recession happens. Yeah. Absolutely. But Michael Bloomberg, what's he going to do? Uh, He's not really in line with the Democratic Party's values outside of climate change. And, you know, we made that little joke. And I, I think that he might do something about pollution. Okay. In this sense, he might be better than Trump. But, like, it's not like if we're talking about the Dakota Access Pipeline – Michael Bloomberg would have been any different than Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Of course not. Of course not. A BP oil spill. I mean, he wouldn't have been any better than Barack Obama. He would have been worse than Obama. If you thought Obama's response to the BP oil spill was bad, he, you know, he'd be worse. He'd be slightly better than Trump. I, I think that that's fair. But, uh, I mean, Michael Bloomberg 
would truly be a debasing of the Democratic Party in a way that would create, in my opinion, a generational rift. Uh, And the next series of primaries would be really brutal on that older generation that supported Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, I think you're right, especially with the generational rift, because I think millennials would then characterize uh, baby boomers and uh, even Gen Xers as being either allowing Bloomberg to speak for them or allowing their voice to be diluted with something to the effect of Bloomberg. I would start the one-term Bloomberg campaign like immediately the day after. I, I Essentially, I think my position on Bloomberg in that hypothetical election would be vote for Bloomberg, immediately start primarying Bloomberg. Because you know for a fact he's never going to be well, sufficiently left. So the, the whole point is you got to get Trump because Trump is such... Here's the problem with Trump, dude. Here's the problem with Trump, man. Like, last week, two weeks ago, he fucking had Jeffrey Epstein's defense attorney argue that the president can do whatever he wants if he thinks it's in his interest or his political party's interest because him being in office, in his mind, is in the national interest. Yeah, see, this is... That guy's got to go, and I know that I know that Bloomberg's got ties to Epstein too, which is why I say you immediately start the one-term Bloomberg campaign as well. But you, you simple impeachment doesn't work, right? It, so the only option at this point is you've got to dump the guy in the White House. That's it. That's it. And and, and then we have to move to secondary mechanisms like actively primarying them right after. But uh, impeachment. I think they should impeach Trump again. I think they should keep impeaching him. But let's not delude ourselves that impeachment is some sort of deus ex machina, that impeachment is going to fix anything. It is simply writing something down for the sake of the history books about the aberrant behavior of this president. But the only way to actually get the guy out of office and not have five more fucking years of this guy and make it only one is to vote him out in November. That's it. That's it. All right, so... This is one of these points where I have to interject kind of what my 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 mantra is with with ad safe politics. Um, this is one of those moments where if you have to take a stand and and vote for Mike Bloomberg, you damn well better be doing it in a state where it actually matters. And if you really want to want to send a message uh, of the likes that you're wanting to send, Chris, what you have to do is you have to have Mike Bloomberg winning the election and and you have to have the Green Party getting about 7% of the vote. Like or or else like the Congress isn't just going to believe you. Uh like if if Well no, I, I this is why I say there's the other option of primary yeah, of the day well, after. That, you know what I mean? Like start protest instead of, instead well, of a victory rally for Mike Bloomberg, his victory rally and his inauguration okay, is marred with protests so Chris, from the let's left. let's remember how we all protested after Donald Trump won. And now and now now this let's is, think of okay, now let's yeah, think of right, Bloomberg. Right? That was actually halfway decent. Of Bloomberg in comparison. Yeah, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the problem is, the problem is not the after Donald Trump won. 
The problem was not that. The protests were good then. The problem is that by April of 2017, there was nothing. He was firing Comey and saying there was nothing to the Russia investigation. People were like, yeah, okay, all right, cool. And now Trump's killing generals in Iran and getting us on the brink of war with Iran. And people are like, yeah, all right, cool. And I I mean, this is a problem. He's got to go. And we have a a broken system. I, I mean, I was thinking about this earlier today. As I was driving to work, man, because my mind is bad. And what I was thinking about is we really need to have a constitutional convention. Because at this point, so many of these structural processes are not working. And they're not working in practice. Impeachment's completely broken. I think we all sort of knew that in the abstract. But this Trump impeachment has really put that out in a concrete way that, you know, heretofore was only conjectural. And, and I think it is sort of different now that you've seen how weak the defense was for the president on the actual charges that were brought yeah. against him and how he still was able to skate out with only one defecting vote. Like, kudos to Mitt Romney. He did a great job in what he did that day. I know there are a lot of people who say, oh, that was just a symbolic vote. Okay, well, if it was just a symbolic vote, there are a number of people who many are fond of who have built a career off of having a bunch of symbolic votes that have not actually changed the outcome of the bill or the policy in question, but you like them because of the symbolic votes. So something to calibrate against with Romney's vote on that day. I think it's a good thing that he denied the Republicans this you know, absolute solid, rock solid, everyone held the line ruling out of the Senate here. But impeachment's broken, man. Yeah, I, I think when I came to that conclusion was through all of the hearings in, in both the House and the Senate, there was no real moment akin to the Barbara Jordan moment with Watergate where I could say to myself that this person has delivered words that the public will respond to and can't deny. And I don't know if it's between the people speaking or the people listening, but I can't think of a group of words that anyone could say. Well, you can't deny something if you don't give a shit about it. I can't think of a group of words that anyone could have said that could have caused the public to react. And so when you have a public that are, are just sitting on their hands, um, what are you supposed to do with the, the value of, of and the quality of impeachment? Um, the, 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 the value of impeachment is only as, as valuable as the people, as, as, as the public sentiment is willing to react to it. And, and uh, there's just no reaction. Oh, this is the worst part, man. The, the worst part about all of this is since <clears throat> the Mueller report dropped in April, of 2019 trump's approval rating is when you kind of factor out the ups and the downs all of that the real clear politics average shows a slope where trump is up by about three percentage points 
having gone through this impeachment process and everything, Mueller report showing connections to Russia, showing 10 acts of obstruction, three or four of which are kind of clearly impeachable ones, you know, having McGahn try to fire Mueller in the midst of the investigation, everything we knew about Stormy Daniels. Part of this, a big part of the story of this administration is the contra-history to the establishment's narrative that Nancy Pelosi is being very tough against Donald Trump. She's not being very tough, and she's not doing a very good job, and she's not holding the line. Because I think the Republicans, with that same hand of the Mueller report and an impeachment trial against Barack Obama, would have his polls in the shitter. It doesn't take too long for me to recognize with, uh, with, a, with about a minute of Chris Novembrino explaining it to me, that Nancy Pelosi has done a poor job here. But I want you to juxtapose that to the image of Nancy Pelosi tearing up the speech of the State of the Union. And what are people going to react to? Are they going to react to the, to, to, to the words of someone who can, who can rightly express that, that Pelosi's done a bad job here? Or are they going to react to Pelosi tearing up the speech? By the numbers, she has not done a good job. But here's where this gets fun, though. Where this gets fun is that in the head-to-head matchups between the Democratic presidential candidates and Donald Trump, yes, it has tightened up a little bit because of bad congressional leadership. It's really no other way of handling it. This is a PR operation as much as anything, right? And Nancy Pelosi just simply hasn't done a very good job. The Democratic presidential candidates are still, including Bloomberg. Actually, Bloomberg does fairly well against Donald Trump. I hate to say it. Uh, all of them are beating Donald Trump, I, with with the exception of like the lesser knowns or whatever. But I think as that starts to thin out here, I think the Democratic candidate's going to continue to have an edge. Yeah, and so... So that's always the, I guess, the way out is you can say that Trump moved up uh, a couple notches, but that didn't give him so much power that it, uh, it's, it turned that tide in, in any sense. Yeah, but the presidential polls are sort of a what about is yeah. also kind of my point here. It, it, yeah, it, it, is that if you want to look and assess Pelosi's job performance you need to look at trump's approval numbers because she's supposed to be the anti-trump foil that is kind of what the opposition speaker's role is in the house and and to that extent she's done a pretty Uh piss poor job and i i mean she got played on the witnesses thing she went thin on impeachment, so instead of having lots of articles and having a much longer trial, having the narrow trial allowed Mitch McConnell to throttle the number of days and try to condense it down to as few days as possible. I mean, Trump was almost off the hook by the time of the yeah. State of the Union. And the only thing that Pelosi really won um, in terms of stalling the clock a little bit was denying Trump the ability to grouse about it at the State of the Union. But otherwise, I mean, he got off. And if they hadn't gotten Romney, if Romney hadn't flipped, I don't think it would I mean they wouldn't really have a case that they did a particularly good job on this at all. And why did Romney flip? Let's talk about that for a moment. Trump has always had a problem in terms of polling support with Mormons. 
interestingly, going all the way back to the 2016 campaign, they just simply don't like the guy. Uh, it, and I don't know enough about the Mormon faith community and sort of the inner workings and the inner kind of cultural dynamics inside of Mormons, um, particularly in the state of Utah uh, among, you know, strong Mormon populations. But Trump does bad. And part of the anti-Trump strategy in 2016 actually hinged around running Evan McMullen, uh, who ran towards the end of the campaign an exclusively Utah-based strategy to try to siphon enough votes away from Donald Trump that he might lose Utah, um, and that the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, might actually win Utah, that sort of thing. There's always been a little bit of space for a Mormon voice in the Republican Party and Mitt Romney has kind of found a way there. The other thing to remember here is that Donald Trump bashed Mia Love. Remember uh -huh. Mia Love? Uh, when, when she left, he was like, Mia Love, she showed me no love, and now she's out of a job. <laughs> Trump's been positioning himself against the Mormon community. And for Mitt Romney, in his home state, standing up for Mormons against Donald Trump, especially when he's being obviously corrupt— it's going to play well, and there's some political reward for him. So that's why Mitt did what he did. I think, you know, there's principles on this. I think that he legitimately doesn't like Donald Trump. But I also remember when he was in there trying to kiss the ring and become Secretary of State or whatever position he was trying to get to. Remember that oh, picture right. where he looked like he was dying yeah. on the inside? So I know Mitt Romney's a little bit craven here. And so I wanted to give you the reality of what I think the politics are that's behind this. Because it's not like, whoa, Mitt Romney had this crazy principled stand. I don't think that's what's going on at all. I think that Mitt Romney is reading the politics of Utah and the Mormon faith community correctly. And also paving a way for Mormons to have their own little lane inside the Republican Party in a stronghold in Utah. Yeah, I... I don't know how much of this has to do with Mitt Romney's actual psyche, but there was something about Mitt Romney's response and how taking an oath meant a lot to him, especially as, as a Mormon or as just someone of faith. Um, yeah. That's the other place where you really hit Trump too, right? I took an yeah, oath to God, and, and, and Trump is obviously a right, godless and, individual. And that's where, like, I don't know how much the the Mitt Romney ideology crosses over with the Evan McMullen ideology, but as far as their adherence to something like taking an oath to God, like Mitt Romney is obviously willing to kiss the ring. And in some senses that like philosophically goes against with goes against any, you know, sort of uh, faith based uh, philosophy. But like, I guess a, a sort of a sort of guy like Mitt Romney needs it thrown in his face with an oath uh, in, in order for it to possibly, you know, mean more for him. And and that's who, who, who am I to say whether or not that's that that's. A, a, a real reaction or or this is a or his vote is a contrived reaction but i think there might be something to this as as far as where mitt romney is in his head and, and i don't i don't i i can only speculate of of course like uh 
where, where, where he actually is here, but I think it is up for speculation. Yeah, no, I, okay, so I, there might be a little bit of a Dark Knight of the Soul thing going on here, too. I think that's fair. I, I'm just observing that the politics inside of Utah are interesting and kind of quirky enough, even though it's a red state, it's a different type of red state, that I think that Mitt Romney is fine and that there's more than enough money for his re-election campaign between what he has personally and also inside of the Mormon faith community. I think they have a vested interest in seeing someone like Mitt Romney as their senator. Um, and, and I don't think that there is room for a primary challenger who would say, ah, Mitt Romney's sin is that he was not obsequious yeah. enough to Trump. He should have took took the <laughs> knee. Now, I, I think the Mormon faith community has enough disdain for Trump that he'll be fine and safe from a primary challenger yeah. like that. My closing thoughts here on impeachment. Trump's presidency is having a long-term implication for any future law implementation. Like this 50 votes threshold, they couldn't even get the 50 votes on impeachment. I think it's going to be a real problem getting laws passed in the next Democratic administration unless there is a real wave in the Senate. And the way the Senate election cycle is set up, there's not waves like that. You have to really kind of keep the pressure on for two or three election cycles in order to have any real impact in changing the construction of the Senate. There are certain things that just do not advantage the Democrats here, like the square states, for for starters. Um, And then, you know, you have all these Democratic votes that are trapped in California they get two senators. You have all these Democratic votes that are trapped in New York. They get two senators. And then there's a secondary issue there, which is this, that you have New York and California where there are all these Democratic voters, and these are very liberal states, and y'all do not produce very liberal senators you or very liberal even representatives. It's a little bit better on the representative side here, but like Chuck Schumer? Come on now. Kirsten Gillibrand? Come on now. Kamala Harris, Ugh. Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein. Like, these are not liberal you know, bulldogs in any sense of the word here. So I think that ends up creating a secondary problem for the Democrats in terms of trying to get things passed through the Senate. You have the issue of it's going to be hard to get 60 votes in terms of senators. It's going to take a couple of election cycles. Maybe in the best case scenario here in this next election cycle, you can get halfway there to like 55 votes, pass a lot of stuff through reconciliation. Entirely possible. But this election, Democrats have to pick up seats. Any Democratic presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders, obviously, Michael Bloomberg, obviously, is going to need Democratic votes. And even someone like Michael Bloomberg, that's kind of why I'm like lumping Bernie and Bloomberg in this sense together. Uh, A little bit of an outsider candidate thing going on here. But the idea that you're going to get votes from across the other party, very, very unlikely. And I think you're just as likely to lose key Democrats and stuff. Like someone like Michael Bloomberg reaching too far across the aisle, I could totally see Bernie Sanders holding the line against him with Liz Warren and several other key Democratic votes. Well, I guess you have two different trains of thought that I guess Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have recently uh, distinguished is you have the budget reconciliation route and you have the filibuster route. I mean, you also have the changing the number of votes required route, but where does that even begin? Uh, 
So I, I, I can't really even look at that. So, uh, or I can't really even consider it when I don't know how to make it a reality. Yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats, whoever the president is, is going to need more Democratic votes than they currently have right now to pass Democratic legislation. I just think that's a fact of life. Yeah, so I, I suppose that makes the inclination to vote a president, to vote for a president who's willing to do more executive orders, who is, who has a who has a uh, a pathway to success that involves less Congress and more executive order, which in turn concentrates power further to the top, which which to is the executive the signal right. that yeah. everyone agrees is 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 the problem. <laughs> Can we at least agree that we're we're kind of stuck at an ends justify the means argument because we don't know how to get out of this other than through putting more power into the executive and that's why i'm saying we need to have a constitutional convention the system's broken think about the answer i don't know what else to generate right <laughs> it's what yeah, yeah. Right. No, I know. Because the right answer is that the system's sufficiently broken such that we need to figure out, as a nation, what we want the rules of the game to be. We're at a point, it's so funny, because like when we first started doing this, I used to always be talking constitutional convention, and then I, in my head, grew up a bit, and I was like, oh, well, that's never going to happen, so why talk about constitutional convention or whatever? But I'm looking at this. I watched that impeachment trial, man. We're busted. We're busted. If the president can do whatever he wants, if he thinks it's going to help him get reelected, and after his reelection campaign, you go, oh, well, Chris, that only applies to one term. <laughs> Come on, dude. The, the argument is just going to very quickly be pivoted into the president can do whatever he or she wants to do. Uh, let's make this intergender too. Let's make sure we're covering all the genders here. Everyone can be corrupt. They can do whatever they want to do if they think it's going to advantage their political party because they think their political party is in the interest of the nation. They truly believe that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever they are. I mean, that's where we're on. This is a death spiral. And you're, there are two options. You can accept decline, and, you know, it's kind of the, like the Jonah Goldberg, the whole premise of his book there, that, you know, Suicide of the West there, is suicide's a choice. So, like, we can choose to stay on this path, um, and, and, and that's fine, and, and we might. We might, because that's the easier choice for us to make. It's sort of the status quo choice. This is where we're going. Uh, or we can, at some point, discuss rules for the 21st century, like Many of the founders believed, not that we needed to have rules in the 21st century, but, you know, people like Jefferson and others believed that the Constitution needed to be revisited from time to time, not just in the form of amendments. Although, back in the 60s and 70s, there were a number of amendments introduced and attempted to be passed. But also just this idea of a constitutional convention. Let's figure it out. If we want to keep the Electoral College, let's at least have it be somewhat proportional. 
Uh, and right now, I mean, it is it is at best marginally proportional. But if you want to get into the voter disenfranchisement of whose votes are worth how much, you know, you're talking like some people's votes are worth six times as many as other people's votes in other states. It, it's utterly convoluted. So if you want to keep the Electoral College, keep it around. Figure out the rules of the game here. The House of Representatives, they just capped it at some point in the 19-teens at a certain number of members, that there could only be 535 members in Congress because they didn't want to build like a bigger arena or whatever. Why? Why not re-examine that? There are all these different things that I think earnestly need to be taken a look at, and, and they're not going to get resolved absent of that. You know, if, if we're going to look at, you know, you, you brought up Jefferson here. He, uh, I mean, this can get in, we can get, really into the weeds in history if, if we wanted to, but if, if you want to think about... I, I don't want to do that because it's dangerous, but I, I do just want to say that there were people who believed when they were drafting the Constitution that a lot of it is subject to big structural change from time to time. One of the reasons I like Jefferson as an example of what we're talking about here is he reimagined the Bible. He, he created... He, reimagined the Bible to the point where he created the Jeffersonian Bible, which is basically the, the Bible minus all of the, all of the magic. Yeah. yeah. The magic. And, and so if, if, if you're looking at least at one of these framers, they're, they're taking something that was thought was complete and, and, and not in need of, of restoration or augmentation and and he completely reimagined it, and so if if you're if you're thinking about the framers' willingness to reimagine things that were other otherwise uh, uh, untouchable, um, I I think that's at least evidence that the, these these minds were willing, or at least one of these minds was willing to reimagine things. Okay, uh, and uh, I I hope that's at least uh, at some point in time. Uh, it gives someone enough courage to to uh, to proposition that we should reimagine this, and and like I I can get very into the weeds and very like uh, very uh, strategic about the electoral college with everything I'm doing with at say politics, but the ultimate goal of it is to play the game with such sophistication that they don't want to play this game anymore. Because the game is shit, <laughs> and and like uh, as much as I am st- strategic about this this bad game, the ultimate goal is is to get rid of the game, and I don't know how to get rid of the game any quicker than to just play the game better than we than we are. Uh, because the only reason they're willing to play the game right now is because of how bad we are at playing it as voters. There's nothing to remove a president who's out of control out of office. So now we really do kind of have a four-year semi-dictatorship because what's the check? Yeah, what what's to stop this from happening again? And 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 when someone pushes this further than Trump and uses Trump as the excuse to, uh, in in court, and they will, and they will, like how other administrations use the Bush administration's horrible arguments about torture, how Obama's administration used horrible Bush administration arguments, those John U arguments, and how Trump's administration did it. They will. They will use his little Epstein arguments. 
Yeah, I I don't know. This is something that is going to, this is going to be some type of paradigm shift. It, it has to be. Uh, uh, other, this is not something that happens incrementally. In a sense, the outcome was a foregone conclusion, right? You and I knew as we were going into this impeachment trial that Trump was going to get off. He wasn't going to be removed from office. The one thing that has been legitimately surprising and has really made me take a step back and reassess where we are in politics in the same way that you know, we kind of joke about the Bloomberg thing, how it's like it's just a whole mind fuck for both of us, right? This actually low-key has because of the defense, because the winning argument in quotes here is the president can do it if he thinks it's going to get him reelected. Yeah, and there's no end to that. Um, it's the losing Nixon argument. When the president does it, it's not illegal. This is that Nixon argument only winning 50 years later. Yeah. You put this all on a timeline. That's decline, man. That's decline. I don't know how to look at it any other way. Yeah. And, and when that argument wins, why do you try anything more sophisticated? You don't. Right. There's no need right. to. Right. No, no, you don't. No, if, I, if I could just say that, then this is fine. Why would I argue a more complicated argument? So, with, if, if fuck you is the winning argument, Brian, yeah. I'm just going to say fuck you. Yeah. And, and so I guess that's what's disappointing about this is because this didn't reveal a seemingly uh, 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 pl- plot hole. This didn't reveal an incongruity here. This revealed the incongruity that we knew 50 years ago, but that since then we have abandoned uh, as as being uh, um, worthy of opposing. Uh, this is this is an incongruity that was exposed 50 years ago, and then was uh, was was countered properly and now this yeah there's enough structural yeah. resistance yeah like it was like electricity you know what yes. i mean so like it, the electricity if there are things to buffer it and resist it it does it does not take the path of you know the fastest path to the ground it's going to try to take the path of least resistance which you can put up resistance to and slow its path down a little bit. yeah the, these are like in the capacitors. case of trump now yeah. these are like yeah, capacitors yeah, are that capacitors. won't discharge uh, <laughs> yeah, these are gone now. These are gone now. And this is like if you could go on the debate stage in November here and nominee Sanders or nominee Bloomberg gets up there and goes, well, and Trump just goes, eat shit. And everyone goes, oh, that's a great argument. Holy shit. Whoa. Like, then, then he doesn't need to argue yeah. anything else. There's no rebuttal to eat shit. If, if, if eat shit is a persuasive argument, that eat shit wins, and that's the problem, is you try to, with the norms the, and the discourse and all of the bullshitty terms that people we don't necessarily always love use in dopey ways that frustrate us. But what all of that is doing on some level is putting up a resistance so that someone can't go on stage and just go, blip, dip, blip, I want to be your senator. <laughs> and that works. Yeah, the, and... There's no more, uh, more uh, de- definitive bravado that can come out of each shit than each shit. 
like like there there's there's that quality of it too is that when when there when there is no inhibition to to uh to cloak yourself like that works on your on, on your base because of how uh how confident you it are it feels authentic it, it, it yeah. is authentic because <laughs> yeah, there, no, it is. there's no right. fear at all there's zero fear and do you know what it's like for for a group of people to be to be given the opportunity to vote for an individual that has no fear at all like the- yeah, and feel empowered <laughs> behind them, right? Like when Trump says "eat shit," they're saying "eat yes. shit" behind him. <laughs> I bet that feels good. Uh, I I in the wrong way. Yes. It feels good in the same way that going to the grocery store and buying a dozen of those donuts that are half off and justifying it that you're saving you money, got it. and then just shoving them all <laughs> in your face feels good. It's not good, <laughs> but but if you lie to yourself that whole way down, you got a great deal on some donuts, you <laughs> ate delicious food, you shoved it in your face, and it tasted awesome. I've been there. It's not good. I've been there. Yeah, it, no, it, it's a good I, moment. I, I might be describing a personal biography <laughs> here. I understand you, Trump voter. I bought donuts, too. I was high. All right, uh, let's do some rank primary punditry. I'm going to do some word association, and you tell me what's on your mind when I say Joe Biden. Slipping. Uh, slept. Or, uh, is, uh, is, it doesn't what? have to be one word. I'm not forcing uh, oh, you into okay. one word. Oh, you can do an oh, entire – you can do like a paragraph. You just – a complete thought, which can be up to and including several minutes uh, not that that ever happens on this show somewhere between iowa and new hampshire it it became over and i don't know exactly when that happened but uh it's obvious it's it's we have nothing oh yeah no he's toast he's done so he's absolutely done so I, i think what's interesting is i didn't realize how bad a shape joe biden's campaign was in and it dawned on me as those Iowa, and it dawned on me as the Iowa results came in. Here's what dawned on me: that Joe Biden, for as bad as he's been on those various appearances that you and I have seen on the campaign trail, and we watch a lot of C-SPAN and a lot of other, like I'm watching stuff on YouTube of just Joe Biden in Delaware, Joe Biden in Pennsylvania, Joe Biden doing an appearance here because he was running a national presidential campaign because he thought he was a national candidate. <laughs> Maybe should have spent some more time in Iowa, or maybe not, because what dawned on me is that Biden's ultimate problem is that as bad as he was in the debate stage, and you and I were seeing it, imagine that in an intimate setting. And we got a little bit of that with look fat. I didn't really think about it like that at the time, because we were so hung up on debating whether or not he said look fat. Think about how weird it is to be in the room with Joe Biden. (laughs) Think about the weird friggin' energy radiating <laughs> off of that guy all the time. And think about how the Iowa voter and the New Hampshire voter and these people who are like really used to the idea of these political candidates coming into town every four years, it's a little bit of like a local tradition. It's what they do and how they feel connected to the national process. Think about how they're reacting to seeing Joe Biden, especially if they've seen Joe Biden before, and they probably have because he campaigned with this guy named Barack Obama, and he was out there as a campaign surrogate during those runs. I mean, they've seen Joe Biden, and they probably see that Joe Biden has been getting old and aging before their eyes. And I think that explains a little bit of the diminished support for Joe Biden. 
You know, this kind of reminds me of when, uh, remember when Charlie Sheen was really popular and he, 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 uh, he went okay, on that tour. Right, hold, hold on, hold on. Popular in which way? Because yeah, he had two runs you. with two different types of pop. Thank you for I guess three runs. Three, yeah, because there's 80s Charlie no. Sheen who is popular. So what okay, I'm so is the, we're not, so we're, and we're not talking about this is the, Two and a Half Men, the early no, part of Two and a Half no, Men. We're no. talking about late era Two and a Half Men when the show was canceled. He was an open crack user. <laughs> and when he went on it. Winning. And, and when he went on his winning comedy tour. Okay, so so he had he had this uh, this momentum of just being Charlie Sheen. And he had this, like, there was this, like, uh, there was this knowledge that he could go off at any moment, but it wasn't really, like, a comedic going off, like, Dave Chappelle could just, like, like turn nothing into something. It was just, like, this it was more like an Axl Rose, Guns N' Roses going off, like, who knows, like, anything terrible could happen. Like... And, and so Charlie Sheen had this. Yeah, nothing wonderful was ever going to happen with Joe Biden, <laughs> no. right? He was never going to say something amazing. It was just he kept going off the wrong way. Yeah, and so uh, Char- Charlie Sheen kind of had this era of like everyone was aware that he was going on this tour, and no one really thought it was funny. But the only reason you wanted to hear about it was because you knew any any updates about Charlie Sheen were going to be bad updates. There were not like like highlights of his shows that were being exemplified. And and so you have this this cacophony of like Charlie Sheen like gaffes and, and all of these and all of these like uh like um free association c- comedy tour of, of Charlie Sheen like there's there's something that really connects me to that with Biden because I I feel like Charlie Sheen kind of died the way Biden is dying uh, as far as his his steam like I think Biden is done yeah. like Warren is on the ropes I think her chances of turning it around are under fifty percent. Yeah. I think there's serious downward momentum, but at the same time the Klobuchar bubble could burst. You know what I mean? Yeah. If she easy come, easy go is sort of how I see things going with Amy Klobuchar, and I wonder if her early overperformance in these extraordinarily white states doesn't travel particularly well as she starts going into some of the southern well, states. Yeah, like I, you know, with Klobuchar, I feel like this is a great window into did Biden's ideology did 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 the people voting or was, did the people siding for Biden for ideological reasons move to Klobuchar out of desperation or out of interest? I think there's a little bit of both. I, I think that they saw structural weakness in Joe Biden. I think that the media kept putting articles in front of these voters' faces that said Amy Klobuchar is good up to and including the New York Times 
endorsing Elizabeth Warren and also the not fucking anywhere near as viable at the time Amy Klobuchar and morally planning them out and saying they both have ran equally good campaigns even though Elizabeth Warren was at 28% at one point at the same time as Amy Klobuchar was at like 2% yeah, or 1% in the polls. They're going to look so much better in retrospect than they deserve for that. Right, yeah, no, exactly. No, there's, Dude, there's a lot of hindsight. It's 2020. I was talking to a conservative friend who was like, oh, you know, the media was definitely in Liz Warren's favor all through 2019, and she just underperformed, and that's why she's here now. And I was like, <laughs> and we'll talk about that more as this campaign rolls on here, depending on what happens with Liz Warren. I th- As I said, I think there's a less than 50% chance that she bounces back, so I don't want to, like, write someone's obituary before the campaign's over. But um, in the case of, like, Joe Biden, the reason I don't think he can bounce back is like what you were saying with Charlie Sheen. When was Charlie Sheen going to say something wonderful? It wasn't going to happen. It was just what was the next crazier, outrageous, or outlandish thing going to come out of Charlie Sheen's mouth? And in the case of Joe Biden, that was like, you know, look, buddy, don't vote for me. Go shove it up your ass. Hey, fatso, let's do some push-ups. <laughs> You're a dog-faced gremlin guy. Like, like, just, I mean, it wasn't going to be like, yeah, you know what? Actually, I think uh, we needed to break up Facebook. Dual antitrust reformation. Tell Zuckerberg to suck it. Like, he wasn't going to say, if he said that, you know what I mean? Like, really throw things around here. But everything, everything that Biden was saying was, like, confrontational and mean and not something that would make you like him more. It was something that was going, you didn't know what it was, but it's something that was going to make you, as a voter, like him less. And so, I, I mean, like, <laughs> that I think is the the Biden issue here. Whereas, you know, so contrast this to Warren. Warren can say and do things that will make you like her more. Whereas I, I just, like, what does Joe Biden have left? I also think, you know, okay, Warren's hamstrung herself with this unity stuff. This unity shit, it, it's a problem because she can't attack the other candidates. Here's who she can attack and should be attacking and should have been attacking, Michael Bloomberg. Oh, so yeah. she could say that it's all about unity. But Mike Bloomberg, you're not actually fucking part of the Democratic Party. So it ain't about uniting with you. Mike Bloomberg, you're exactly the problem. And exactly what we need to be pushing our oar away from. Yeah, I I suppose with with the New Hampshire debate, there was a line that Warren offered about you shouldn't be able to buy your way into into a into an election. And she doesn't want to take down Steyer either, and that's the other problem here. Yeah, that... Yeah, she she wasn't willing. Steyer's tricky though, right? Because like Steyer fakes being a Democrat pretty good. I, I won't lie though. I was cackling when he just threw in out of nowhere, and I'm in favor of reparations <laughs> because South Carolina's <laughs> coming up next week. <laughs> blink, 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 blink. Love reparations. There, there were so many voters who were just waiting for for him to take that stance, and now they can. They can comfortably get behind him. I'm, I'm sure that's what he was thinking. I, like, he, he's he definitely uh, is willing to say anything just just to get traction. But I I also believe him as far as his climate change stances. Yeah, right. No, uh, there's certain things I do believe him on. Yeah, I, yeah but but there's other things that are obviously <laughs> cynical. Yeah, there's there, there's too much to pick apart with him for for me to see him as like this Overton window mover now. Like it, 
because the twenty-two dollar an hour minimum wage. Like, wh- wh- where would that come from? To, to get back to Warren, I don't know why she is even unwilling to fight against Bloomberg. And the only reason I can think of is like she has this ad- adherence uh, to this stance against uh, uh, fighting against a Democrat, to where Bloomberg counts as one of those Democrats. I just think that's nuts. Uh, yeah, and I, I think, it, you know, especially for her, I, I get that she's, just, you know, not where Bernie is on the linear or like, you know, biplanal spectrum, however you want to chart her out. But Bloomberg is sufficiently across the line. I'd say this as someone who I guess would identify as a Warren Democrat. There's a great graphic coming out of New Hampshire of where voters saw Warren. It was 43% saw her as not liberal enough, and 44% saw her as too liberal, and like 7% saw her as just right. That so confirms Someone everything. firmly, yeah, yeah, it's firmly in that 7%, yes. As someone who's firmly in that 7%, I think that Mike Bloomberg is well enough outside of that uh, that we can disown this guy and be totally fine with it and not feel like we're not being welcoming enough. In the same way that like Amy Klobuchar and her, I'm in favor of anti-abortion people <laughs> being able to hang out in the Democrat. Go fuck yourself. Get lost with that shit. No. No. So let's talk about Amy Klobuchar a little bit here since I brought her up. Amy Klobuchar, clearly a skilled politician, as much as there have been a thousand think pieces behind her, and I've talked about that and been documenting it for months now. She's had strong debate showings. She's a good puncher. She's aggressive. She is killing Warren by side-hugging Warren and also using all the media think pieces and stuff to move past Warren. I think where she is getting all of her support, if you look at the, you know, kind of the trough off here, Klobuchar is taking all the support from Warren. So women voters who I think you know, Warren might be a little bit too left for a lot of women voters who might be a little bit more dispositionally moderate. And here comes Amy Klobuchar. And um, she also is a place for the boomer vote to go from Biden. And so with, with both of those things kind of pulling together here, here's the Klobuchar vote happening. And this is in it, Klobuchar. It's weird because in the short term, she's inadvertently helped Bernie a lot. In the long term, I think she is Bernie's biggest structural problem. He is, she is not who Bernie wants to be in a head-to-head matchup against. Because I think Bernie loses against Klobuchar. Bernie may beat Trump, but I think Bernie does not beat Amy. Now, I, in my opinion, that will depend on... I will be giving money to the Sanders know. campaign in the event of a Klobuchar-Sanders oh, yeah. head-to-head, too. Yeah, absolutely, um, to be completely clear. <laughs> I think I would first need to better understand where Pete's numbers would go and how, how Pete would dwindle Pete's coalition's really interesting. Have you been following any of the results coming out of Iowa and New Hampshire? Not as closely as you have. Okay, it's younger than I think you and I realized. That there are actually a lot of young voters who, for whatever reason, really like what Pete's throwing down. And it's not just white people. It's a lot of minority voters and stuff, too, from what I've been seeing just from like exit interviews and stuff. There are people who just... They like his energy, especially if you're young and going to college. Um, they like that he sounds smart. And they think that he seems capable. And they are biased towards a younger person. I feel like... So there are people... And they also... 
oscillate kind of freely between Bernie and Bernie and Buttigieg in a way right. that you and I would never. Right. And, and see, I think there is an oratory style and a rhetoric that Pete is kind of like a Bernie Sanders starter package for millennials that we don't really understand as far as how they're... And Gen Zers yes. that we don't really understand because uh, we are millennials. Yeah. I'm a Gen Xer, by the way. Born in 80. Are you? I mean, how old are you? Born in 80. I, I, I'm not a Gen I mean, Xer. I'm, I'm a Gen... You're like 40. I guess you're like right on the line. Yeah. You're like, like an old... I mean, I'm a the zennial. Oldest I'm a millennial. Zennial. Yeah, I guess you're you're like... Right, yeah, I guess so. Okay, a zennial. Yeah. Great. I'm, yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm a unicorn, damn it. Uh, okay, you are. You're special <laughs> snowflake, and I love you and appreciate you, and this Not is enough. me lifting Not you enough. up. And I think it's funny. Honestly, I really do. I think I, I do a really great job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's. But to get back to 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 Pete and Bernie, I think there is where I don't really see the Pete to Amy Klobuchar migration happening in the same way I saw the Biden to Klobuchar migration happen with Pete. I think the path of least resistance from Pete is back to Warren. So that that's kind of an interesting thing to look at, too. And so where does Warren potentially get second life from? A collapse of the Klobuchar campaign or a collapse of the Buttigieg campaign, coupled that, with yeah. a good Warren performance, could put Warren back into the running here um, with the people who think that Bernie is too extreme, of which there are many across a broad age spectrum, and also the people who want a female candidate. Yeah. And there would only be Klobuchar to Warren to choose from. So... I think she's she's not out of the running here yet, but but again, it, it's she she needs other people to kind of underperform here, um, and conversely, Sanders Sanders needs to find where he's getting more votes from because he has. I mean, like, look, I one you have the media erasure of Sanders where they're like talking about the second and third place finishers in New Hampshire, not even mentioning who finished first. Yeah. It's fucking nuts, wow. right? But on on the flip side of this, right, Bernie's at about. 28 to 30 percent right and you look at warren's numbers right now she's at around kind of standing alone on herself like 11 percent 13 percent somewhere hovering around there i she finished a little bit lower in new hampshire It'll be interesting to see how she does in other states that sort of thing but you couple those numbers together that is not 50 percent and that is a problem um, so the question is, where is Bernie getting those additional votes? Now, some of that, some of that banked vote is going to be with Buttigieg and the collapse of the Buttigieg campaign here. But you know, Andrew Yang, he didn't show up at the polls, so you can't be like, oh, the Yang gang, we're going to add them to our numbers. There was no Yang gang at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, unless you're saying to me, okay, there was no Yang Yang at the ballot box in Iowa and New Hampshire where Andrew Yang spent a shitload of his time over two years, but there's going to be a lot of Yang Yang at these other places that is unaccounted for and will be migrating. Okay, but you hear the cynicism in my framing of that argument. Um, there isn't like a Steyer gang. There's not like a Tulsi gang. Um, so, and you know, it's not like Sanders is going to pick up any of the two people who like Michael Bennett or the one person who likes Deval Patrick, um, who knew who Deval Patrick was. So, like, the question is, where is Bernie getting that additional support? I kind of get why there are some people in Bernie's camp who are like, where's your dropout now? Because Bernie does need to get more votes, and it's not really clear where else that's coming from, um, other than with, like, Warren dropping out or Buttigieg dropping out. But I think he kind of needs both those people out of the race to get to 50%. Yeah, I, I don't know how else it happens. But um, I'm curious 
if it matters which one of them goes out first and and i of course it does matter but i don't, I don't really i don't feel like i quite understand all these yeah i mean there. warren's built to last here and so is pete like they're, they're both in it right now i think you know warren's obviously closer to being out of the race if she has a really poor showing in Nevada and South Carolina, particularly Florida. I think Florida is going to be the real kind of thinning of the herd here. If she has a bad performance in those three states, she's done, right? But then what does that look like in terms of Sanders's support? You know, where does that put him at? I, I think that might mean he's at 37, 38% because I think some of those Warren voters, it's not like Warren is a giant bank of voters that are immediately going to Bernie Sanders. And, oh, by the way, this is where all that snake emoji bullshit, I think, is going to bite them in the ass. You want to pick up these Warren voters. How are you going to do that? You want to pick up these Buttigieg voters. You've been calling them a rat all last week. Like, eventually you need to get some of these people to come and pull a lever for you after these candidates become non-viable. And leaving a bad taste in someone's mouth makes them not want to vote for you. And if there's any group of voters in this primary field who should understand that after the 2016 election in Hillary Clinton, it is the Bernie Sanders crowd. When I figure out how to talk that talk, I'll let you know. Man. Oh, I, I'm not going to try to reason with them on this, but like, I, I just I need to note the irony because it, it is a little bit, yeah. a little bit frustrating. Lost Can we talk me. about Pete? Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Let's 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 take the edge off here. I'm going to talk about Pete here. So Pete had this legitimately important moment in Iowa, right? Where we have the first openly gay presidential candidate who's like seriously viable, a serious front runner, whether you like him or not, you can't deny his like legitimate top tier contender status. And he finishes, depending on how you want to frame it, I don't really give a shit, second or tied with Bernie Sanders in the finish here. It's a great finish. It's a great finish. It's a great historical moment. And Buttigieg sort of undermined himself by giving that bullshitty speech where he claimed certain victory despite the fact that victory was not certain whatsoever. And it's really disappointing. It really does suck. Yeah, it, all, all around, it was, I think, poorly played, especially by Pete. Um, there were... I can I can see him framing this differently in a couple different ways and looking so much better than the way that he chose to to come out and claim this. Um, uh, it it really speaks to like in my opinion generalities of a young candidate uh, who is wanting to claim that that throne. Uh, uh, however the size however large the size he's a total 90s nickelodeon candidate you remember nickelodeon from the 1990s like where it felt like it was like this independent like alternative anti-establishment brand but in reality it was owned by viacom and filmed at universal studios and like all the slime was manufactured in a factory and they had a ceo i mean this is not remotely anti-establishment at all but kind of felt that way that's pete Buttigieg. he's the green slime of nickelodeon from the 90s 
yeah, Nickelodeon got me. Uh, but, you know, corporations get lots of people. Uh, all right, Yang. Let's talk about Yang. So Yang got himself on the stage here prior to New Hampshire, and then New Hampshire happened, and it was the end of Yang. But, like, all things said and done, he spent a lot of time on the campaign trail, but we all know who Andrew Yang is now. We now understand his UBI program. I think what's impressive about it is that a decent amount of people understand not only what the proposed plan is in terms of like $1,000 a month for everybody, but it's, it's fewer, obviously. A decent chunk of people understand that the idea is that that would be financed through taxing online sales. And I think you know that's a real testament to having an issue. And sticking to your issue and getting out there. Now, he was a interesting candidate. Love his energy. I think he's a really likable dude. I think he's legitimately funny, which is the thing that is sorely missed in politics. Not funny in the way that Donald Trump is funny, which is that he's mean. And sometimes he's being mean to people you don't like, and that's funny. Um, but funny, like Andrew Yang's actually just like funny. He's a quirky guy. He, he can make a joke, and he can be lively and entertaining and there's something to be said for that and that energy will be missed in our system in a serious way but then he also said shit like on the debate stage here where he's like well i think we should just probably pardon trump uh we definitely don't need to investigate him. we need to look forward not backwards and i'm having like these acid flashbacks to the worst parts of the obama administration where he's like oh you know let's just let trump and everything he did in iraq you know okay yes there were war crimes okay yes they let bin laden go in tora bora okay yeah that's fine but we must look forward not backwards to bring the country together and call me a cynical millennial, but I think that's a load of shit. I, I think that you hold people who do bad things accountable, and that's the way you get things done. Yeah, it's statements like that, coupled with his lack of a willingness to endorse a candidate. In fact, he's, he's come out and said that he won't endorse a candidate because too many of his uh, supporters di- disagree. And so the... the the, the, the Which is ridiculous. That's not a leader. Yeah, That's not a leader. The, the, that exactly. No. I, initially, he said that he'd endorse somebody who endorsed his platform on UBI, and I think that's a completely reasonable precondition. I think that's fine. Sanders would do something similar, so there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and I, I would agree with Sanders doing that as well. Like I think, certainly, I think no matter how this plays out, Sanders should hold out and try to maximize his leverage at the convention. I don't have any problem with him doing that. Uh, but, but yeah, like in, in the case of Yang, no problem with him saying, I will endorse any candidate who endorses UBI. Cause that's why I'm running. I'm running around an issue here. Uh, I think it's weird though, when he's on the back end and going, Oh, I don't want to upset my supporters, but it's not like, I mean, I measure that against Tulsi Gabbard going on Sean fricking handy last night. And I'm like, okay, I I'm not as upset about Yang playing it down the middle. Cause I mean, his whole slogan was not left, not right, forward. He yeah. believes in that shit. Yeah. I don't believe in that shit, but he does. Well, I don't know uh, what he originally thought holistically about Bernie Sanders and, and his and his ideology, you know, uh, totally. But when you think about the people that Andrew Yang reached. You have, in my opinion, uh, to whatever degree, uh, uh, a a group of people who could have gone either way, 
and then became attached to Yang and his platform of UBI. And <clears throat> now you have these people. You have an interesting debate that's happening in kind of the college level anti-establishment political sphere. Like when we saw just flashes of this in 2019 between the universal basic income versus the universal jobs guarantee. Yeah. Okay. Remember that little micro debate? I think that sticks around for a while. Well, I, I think what I'm most curious about is, uh, did Andrew Yang kind of, uh, not radicalize, but did he, uh, did he form an opinion with his, his followers that it, it's sort of a UBI or bust, uh, where, uh, even if Andrew Yang uh, mostly aligns with one candidate or another, if they don't, uh, they, they're going to end up supporting a candidate who supports UBI, or they're uh, going to vote third party, or or you know, uh, and, or stay home. Or stay yeah, home. they they could be the the type of people that we might have called Bernie or bust in the last election cycle, but they're like UBI or bust because the UBI vision, and I think this is maybe the more subtle critique of Yang's campaign. He's so singularly focused on this idea of the UBI as the catch-all, fix-all. That we pass the UBI and so many of these other problems that you're experiencing will be just ironed out because you'll have that thousand dollar check or because you'll have that thousand dollar a month check rolling in. That's gonna be so cool. You'll be able to put that to whatever your problem is, whether it's healthcare or whatever. And some people have brought up you'll be spending that money either on rent or on healthcare. It might help you on rent if you don't have a place to stay right now. Thousand dollars a month is great. But in terms of actually solving the healthcare crisis, all the UBI program really does is introduce an online sales program to pay for Medicare for a lot of people. And for others, they'll have $1,000 a month to not have health care with, which is, I mean, better than not having $1,000 a month. But like Yang really put all of his eggs in that basket. And then when it came to the issues of the day, like foreign policy, where's Yang's vision on that? And even Yang supporters, you've got to admit that Yang was always, he was not always averse to talking about things that were happening in the world or foreign policy related matters, but he was not taking confident stands on foreign policy either. And it's hard to articulate without going and getting online and doing a lot of extra little homework right off the top of your head, what Yang's foreign policy vision is certainly nowhere near to the level of depth that you could obviously articulate his UBI vision. And then when it comes to matters of Trump, I I just think that his want to have these disaffected Trump voters who are maybe regretting their vote for Donald Trump and they feel very bad about it, but they don't want to actually admit it and be like, dude, I fucked up. Like, we, we voted for an idiot. We, we should have voted for this guy. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea of letting them off penalty-free and doing that was so important to him that it prevented him from actually making meaningful assessments or critiques of the Trump presidency beyond him saying Trump is the symptom, not the cause of our problems. Okay, that's fine. But what are the symptoms doing to the body? Yeah, and I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious at what point when we discover if Andrew Yang is 
trying to uh, congeal a political party out of this. Well, it's not going to be happening anytime soon, based off of these initial numbers. Yeah, yeah. I know. I but he's it seems got some like more he was to do. His bets on his on his stance. I think he wanted bigger numbers. Yeah. Yeah, they had good fundraising, dude. I mean, I don't think it's over for him. I think he's going to come back again. But here's what I will say: for we've obviously talked about the positives. Now let's talk about the negatives. He didn't fucking win, uh, and not only did he not fucking win, he didn't even get to five percent in the Democratic electorate. And it's not as though if he flipped parties and ran as a Republican next time around, he would do much better. I th- the only thing he would do as a Republican the next time around is maybe give us Democrats something to raid the vote with. Because, I mean, I think for all of us, having a Republican nominee, Andrew Yang, as a Democrat would be totally acceptable. Yeah. Andrew Yang on one side, on the right side, and whoever the Democratic nominee is on the left side – that's a great choice for, you know, a, a liberal or left voter. Um, but, yeah, I just, I don't, the problem for Andrew Yang going forward here is that he needed 5 to 10% to really make the argument of we are now into the next phase of making a political party and a political movement. What he's been talking about is he wants to run for some sort of executive position. Maybe he can run for governor of somewhere, but I'm not really sure where. I'm not, you know, what what state is really a perfect fit for Andrew Yang, that he can quickly qualify for in terms of uh, like citizenship in that state. I, I, don't, I don't know which one it is, but he has mentioned he wants an executive role somewhere. Um, but we'll be open to a cabinet position or something like that. I don't know. Interesting guy. Obviously important. I, I mean, think about this. You know, talking about first, too. Um, Asian-American candidate, the first major... Asian American presidential candidate, certainly a major, a major milestone for that population, and like an interesting and unique figure in American politics, far beyond his identity. Just you know, an interesting guy. Uh, I'm glad that he ran. Uh, I think that he did interesting stuff along the campaign trail. I've never felt a wider spectrum about a candidate than I have for Andrew Yang because I think he is. Dead on the money when he is talking about job automation and when he's talking about the issues of industrialization, uh, but particularly automation and, and the way that computerization of jobs and when you couple that with population growth are going to create a real pinch point in our economy that we are going, you and I are going to live to see the pain of at some point, not necessarily suffer through, maybe we'll be older, maybe we'll be in our 70s or whatever, but we will see a real reordering of the economy in the same way that the people who live in the 1800s and were riding around, you know, on, you know, carriages and on horses one day saw cars in the street and they were living in a different era and they were old men too i we will live to see that day in terms of the economy and i think yang is dead on the money with that and we need to be thinking forward on that but then he also did things that drove me up a wall in a different direction i'm i'm curious where his his momentum goes just as far as ubi but uh i'm really curious if more than one uh, candidate in 2024, 2028, uh, uh, uses UBI as, as, a, as a platform, and, and if they do, you, you can only attest that to, to Yang, and maybe it's Yang himself. Doing Andrew it. Yang. Maybe it's right. Yang himself in 2024, or uh, maybe this becomes a party, and uh, 
and Yang is running for president while uh, we have some uh, some uh, people in Congress uh, running uh, on the UBI platform at, uh, at the same time. Uh, I think that would have been a uh, an interesting uh, um, facet to Andrew Yang's campaign that you won't, I, th I think there were a few candidates who uh, who came out in support of UBI, but uh, no one really that I can I can repeat right now. Um, uh, I I don't know if that's a testament to Gabbard came out in favor of the UBI at one point, but I also believe Marianne Williamson did as well. I mean, these are not heavy hitters or whatever, but. You know, you want to talk about historicity. Obviously, we talked about the Asian-American side of this. The more important thing is that Andrew Yang will forever be associated with this idea of universal basic income. You know, kind of as, as the forerunner. You know, he's like the Eugene Debs of the universal basic income. And, like, that's yeah. pretty cool, man. Yeah. Like, he's done something really meaningful here. Whether you agree with it or not, it's... An important milestone, and I think, you know, with anything, you can always acknowledge the historicity of something, including the Trump presidency, and not necessarily like it. Yeah, I think that's a, a discipline that uh, everyone is, is, is served for maintaining, and, and it's just, it's, uh, it's harder and harder to find people maintaining that these days. That's going to do it for this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. If you want to hear more, don't worry about the government. There is a Patreon, patreon.com slash DWATG. This show is listener supported. So a buck a show is all we ask if you want to support this show. I put out premium episodes. Sorry about not doing an episode after the last debate. I figured I'd just roll it into this episode. I'm a little burned out from doing the Bernie Sanders show, to be completely honest. And also, there was some issues with, like, my eyes don't, like looking at screens after work and it's it's hard like i do eight hours of staring at the computer i'm not trying to you know, woe is me i know a lot of people do that but it's hard when i come home and i have to you know look at the computer for two or three more hours after i've already looked at it for eight hours and so i'm trying to find ways to strategically get time in here but also take care of my eyes and it's been a little trickier than i thought it would be so anyways uh you can find me at chris Novembrino. brian where can people find you at Safe Politics. All right, that's going to do it. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Until the next one. Bye-bye.